There's that memorable opening scene from Twilight Zone, the movie. Two guys telling each other scary stories. Do you remember it? My producer friend Rick reminded me that one of those two is Dan Aykroyd. And check it, the other was Albert Brooks driving down a rainy highway at night. Hey, hey man, you want to hear something scary? And he tells his buddy in the car a scary story or makes a scary observation. And then this buddy thinks about it for a moment. Rain, 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 going down the highway. And chirps back, yeah, that was scary, but you want to hear something scarier? And it eventually gets to a point where they say, you want to you hear something really scary? And he pulls the car over. And I won't give away the ending, although seeing it as a kid, the year was 1983. I guess I was 17. That's the last time I've seen that movie. I did find that, indeed, I did find that ending to that scene was really scary. Well, I'm not Albert Brooks, and I don't have Dan Aykroyd this week, but it is the scary month of the year, which means in what is becoming a rule-breaker investing tradition, I have the Motley Fool's expert Robert Brokamp to tell some really scary stories. Now, we're a money podcast, so as you might expect, what scares us are financial horror stories. Financial Horror Stories, Volume 2, only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. You know, that's normally, we say that's the sound of rules being broken, except this particular week each year, because for the second year, we're telling financial horror stories this particular week. That sounds to me like the broken glass from a really scary intruder. That's how it's going to feel this week, the 18th of October. So it's not quite Halloween, but it is that time of year, and it's time to welcome back my friend Robert Brokamp. Before I bring Bro back on, let me just say, I hope you enjoyed last week. The nine foolish truths that I hold to be self-evident. I do it once every two years. If you didn't get a chance to hear that one, or if you think somebody in your life might benefit from thinking longer term or thinking differently about investing, somebody who might appreciate some foolish truths, well, I throw that one down just once every two years. I'm not going to say it's more special than Halloween, which always comes out once a year. I'm not going to say things that are biennial are more special than the annual But I am going to say that I put a lot of effort into that one, and I hope you enjoyed it and or will share it out with others who will get to enjoy it. Nine foolish truths I hold to be self-evident. You know, last year, right at the same week, well, technically it was October 19th of last year, we did Financial Horror Stories, Volume 1. It was entitled Volume 1, Memento Mori, Key Lessons About Wills and Estates, Triggered by scary, scary stories of those who didn't do their wills and estates. Famous people, mostly like, I don't know, Prince, who didn't do his will. And how that comes to haunt your heirs and future generations that you didn't do your will. Scary stuff. And near the end of that show, guest star Robert Brokamp telling seven memorable stories. And by the way, if this is relevant to you at this stage of life, if you're at or near that time that you do want to do a good job with your will and your estate. That might be younger than you're thinking, by the way. If you're somewhere there, you might really enjoy listening one year ago. It's only going to get scarier and haunt us more as the years pass by. That first Financial Horror Stories, Volume 1, really focused 
on wills and estates. I hope that you will enjoy it. Maybe re-listen to it or share it out to somebody else who should be doing his or her will. I don't know. Is that passive aggressive to to nudge a podcast link to somebody that you think in your life should be doing their their will? Go ahead. Be passive aggressive. Send it. I think the world will be a little bit better. Robert Brokamp is the lead advisor of the Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement Service, which is at or near, Robert, its 20th anniversary mark. Nine, 19 and a half, I'll say. How's 19 that? and a half. So if, if, by the way, you, dear listener, are at or near retirement and you're not subscribed, Robert, how does how do I join Rule Your Retirement? Well, you can just go to ruleyourretirement.com and you will find the website. Sign up. Give it a try. Hopefully, you learn an awful lot about planning, saving, and spending money in retirement. And I know we're going to get scary in a sec, but we're going to stay friendly and happy right now. <laughs> Give me a little bit more about the service itself. Uh, feel free, if you want, Riff, for 30 seconds about any history or how it's morphed. But what can I expect? What am I getting if I sign up for Rule Your Retirement? Well, you get a couple of articles a week based on retirement, some from me, some from the wider Motley Fool expert group. Um, you get discussion boards, you get some of my favorite financial tools. And just by becoming a premium subscriber to The Motley Fool, you have access to Fool Live, which airs every day. And I do two shows on that, answering Huge. your financial planning questions. That's awesome. And actually, for the fun of it, when do you do your twice a week appearances? Uh, Tuesdays, Tuesday morning, 10 a.m. Eastern time. I, we do the retirement show with Dan Kaplinger and I, who's a former financial planner and former attorney. And then Dan and I just spend every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern time just spending an hour answering people's financial planning questions. That is just phenomenal. And Robert, you have done that for um, more than 20 years uh, at The Motley Fool, and you have made the world so much smarter, happier, and richer. And you're also going to make it a little bit scarier this week. By the way, Bro also does contribute to uh, The Motley Fool Money podcast and our 401k committee here at The Motley Fool, something we're very proud of with high participation, the envy of many another corporate office that we have this many fools, our employees who are invested in their 401k, and bro is partly to credit for that. Well, we've talked a lot about smarter, happier, and richer, but let's get a little scarier this week, because last year, Robert, you brought us stories, one chapter after another, of mostly famous people who did not do their will. What is this year's theme? I would say I've broadened it a little bit. I would just say... scary financial tales in general. We're talking about mistakes people made, talking about people who are trying to take your money, and because there's always an example of a famous person who dies without a good estate plan, I got another one of those this year, too. A reprise. Excellent. Well, I say without further ado, let's get started now. For each of our chapters, our talented, world-class producer, Rick Engdahl will be bringing a scary sound effect to get us in the right state of mind for each of these stories. Robert, help out Rick here a little bit. What's the title of chapter number one? Number one is Switcheroo with the Vampire. All right, and I'm trying to puzzle this one out. Often you throw in puns or there are references to pop culture that I no longer get because I'm 57 years old. But how would you like to start Switcheroo with the Vampire? Well, our first tale here starts, imagine yourself a daughter helping her mom try to open a loan from Morgan Stanley, you know, a big brokerage firm where her mother had an account with a financial advisor. After they applied for the loan, they discovered that there already had been a loan taken out in the mother's name Uh to the tune of $800,000. 
Wow. And where did that money go? To the personal bank account of her mother's financial advisor, Michael Barry Carter. That is, that is scary. Yes. So this prompted Morgan Stanley to do an internal investigation, as you might imagine. And they found that Carter had transferred more than $6 million in 53 unauthorized transactions from the accounts of various clients over the span of 12 years. Um, and this included money held uh, by a nonprofit sports organization, and it included money that a grandmother had put in a 529 college savings plan for her grandkids. So on a call with colleagues, Carter admitted that he forged client signatures and created falsified documents. The subsequent investigation found that he diverted account statements to his own address. And in one instance, get this, I can't believe this one, he even went to a client's house, answered her phone to get past the firm's multi-factor verification, and then completed the transaction. Um, So where did all this money go? Well, Carter used it to pay for his mortgage, pay off his credit card bills because he lived a lavish lifestyle, and of course, pay his country club membership fees. As you might imagine, Carter was fired by Morgan Stanley, arrested, and he is now serving five years in prison. When did this happen? This happened, well, so the the final It happened over many years, I know, but when was he busted? 20, well, so I think he was busted in 2019. The trial ended in 2021, and it happened in our backyard here, Tyson's Corner, Virginia, which you know, David and I are yeah. now just a mere 30 minutes away from. Wow. I totally missed this one. You know, usually these kinds of stories, especially if they're local, find me somehow. And, and, yet, and yet I had, was this a national story, Robert? Or is this something that could be happening anywhere? So here's the, here's the, the scary part of this. I found almost all of my stories just by going to the websites of the IRS or the SEC or, you know, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the su- Southern District of New York. And when you go to those pages, it is just a litany wow. of bad people ripping people off. Okay. So that was scary. And I think a lot of us might be wondering, um, what should I be learning from that? And for each of the chapters, one through six, Robert, you have promised to give us some sense of hope, some action item, something to think about, some way to be positive in the face of something that, when you have a trusted relationship with somebody who supposedly is looking after your best interests and it's betrayed and it happens many times, um, it starts making you wonder, well, how would I know that my guy or gal isn't also doing this to me? Right. So I think there was a good line from U.S. Attorney Jonathan Lenzer um, who after this said, this case reflects the reality that large-scale fraud could still occur at a global institution with a robust compliance program. So the bottom line is, even if you trust your financial advisor, you need to be checking in on your accounts, ideally quarterly, just to make sure there isn't unauthorized transactions, unauthorized trades, something else funky going on. The other issue here was the loan that was taken out. So how can you prevent that? Well, you go to annualcreditreport.com and you Mm. get free credit credit reports, so then you see all the loans you have. But you can also freeze your credit so that nobody can take out any loans in your name. You do that. You, have, you do have to contact the credit agencies directly. It's very easy to do and very easy to unfreeze when you want to take out a loan. Those are the most important things to do. And if you are not someone who is on top of your finances that way, do something like this one woman did. Work with, in her case, it was a daughter, but you work with someone else you trust to help you keep an eye on things. 
In the face of a scary story like this one, it seems natural that we all think, oh my gosh, I have to, I should do all the things that, that you just said, bro. I should, I should check quarterly, which by the way, we should, et cetera. But I'd also like to ask you, are these things something that you're doing? yourself, Robert, like, are you checking in on your annual creditreport.com once a year and quarterly on your, is this practical? It is for me because I, you know, I live and breathe this stuff. So <laughs> I do it. I think for, and I'll talk about this probably throughout the show. I think more in terms of people like my parents and, and I have an older aunt and I wonder about them and, and what I can do to help them keep an eye mm. on things. Yeah. So we'll leave that rhetorical. Uh, it's a beautiful question. What what can we do, especially for the older people in our lives who probably have more than we do because they're older if they've been compounding their returns over time, but they also may have less awareness or less ability to focus on what's happening around their financial life. Um, this is not, by the way, to besmirch Morgan Stanley. It's a very fine firm. There are Many great brokers at Morgan Stanley, but it could also be true of any firm. And it sounds like if you're on the IRS website or the SEC website, you're going to see just how often this could happen. Yeah, I think that's very true. And that was part of the, I think, the point that U.S. attorney was making. Morgan Stanley has a very robust compliance program. They have everything, they're doing everything you can to prevent these things from happening. But it doesn't matter because there are still going to be bad people doing bad things wherever you go. Is that positive enough for you, David? That's scary. <laughs> and let's let's stay scary and move on to chapter number two. What is the title of chapter number two? The trade is coming from within the house. <laughs> That's an old play, by the way, the old phone. The, the call is coming from in the house. Do you remember yeah, that old I urban do. legend? I do, yes. Okay. Terrifying. <laughs> and thank you for that opposite sound effect, Rick Engdahl. Stardust. So our next story begins with an account manager at a publicly traded company named Marco Perez. And I can imagine him sitting at his desk, you know, looking at invoices or spreadsheets or something like that. But then he learns something new. His company may be acquired by another company. Now, when a publicly traded company is going to be bought out, what often happens to the stock price? It goes up. So what should you do when you learn about potentially stock-moving news? But you shouldn't do what Marco did, because he told his two siblings, and all three of them started buying up the stock, netting them a profit of $650,000. As the acquisition did indeed go through, the stock price of the acquired company rose from $12 to almost $19, and the trading volume soared 19,000%, which is probably a tip-off that somebody knew something. Mm. Um, and the story comes to us from an SEC press release, and it seems that these three have consented to some form of judgment while the investigation is still ongoing. Are you naming names? Do we know the company? The acquiring company, in this case, was United Rentals, which is a $30 billion company. Okay. Whenever I hear stories like this, I'm, I'm wondering, how did they get found out. Who was the person who noticed or apprehended or stepped forward? Right. And I don't know the, the answer, but I'm sure that investigators saw the, the spike in the volume. Yeah. Um, and I, I bet it had something to do with the three of them talking about it. There were probably emails. There were texts. Somebody said something to someone and they left a trail behind them. And I'm wondering, is it clear whether Marco knew what he was doing and cynically intended to make money this way? I can imagine 
depending on the nature of the business, this person may not realize the mistake that they're making, even telling their siblings. And I don't know the answer to that, but I do know, just generally speaking, I'm no lawyer, but even if you don't know you're committing a crime, you still are held accountable when you do commit a crime. Yeah, and I would I would suspect many listeners of this show and all Motley Fool podcasts would already know something like this, but sometimes I wonder about the world at large and different cultures and people don't necessarily know, but... Uh, that spike in volume is usually a dead giveaway, and it sounds like they were buying stock. I would think the best way to really make money here would be trade out there in the options market where you can get a lot of leverage and make even more than $650,000. By the way, I'm not giving any, any I advice. I was just wondering, are you giving insider trading <laughs> advice here, I'm David? definitely not. Um, I hate it when I hear these kinds of stories. They are scary. What's the lesson? So I would say the lesson is that I'm sure many of our listeners work for publicly traded companies, or they work for companies that work with publicly traded companies, yeah. or they are friends with or relatives of someone who works for a publicly traded company. It'd be very easy to learn non-public information and think, well, what's the harm if I buy the stock now? Or get options, as, as you apparently are recommending. <laughs> Emphatically, I am not. And the truth is, I mean, I can, I can understand how someone feel like they might get away with it, and they might. But this shows that they may not. And and this happens all the time, right? Just recently, Stephen Beyer, who's a former lawmaker and served in Congress for nearly two decades, was just convicted of insider trading. And of course, we all know the famous example of people like Martha Stewart. So you might get away with it and you might not. And frankly, I wouldn't risk it. All right. From switcheroo with the vampire to the trade is coming from within the house. Robert, take us to chapter number three. And I know Rick is ready to supplement. Dial M for my money is all gone. I never did see Dial M for murder. Did you? Years ago. Many, many years. Yeah, Hitchcock? Hitchcock. Okay. Yeah, one of the all-time best. Yeah. Dial M, though, here for for my money is all gone gone. And I, I, because you submitted these titles to me ahead of time, I know that my money is all gone is in quotes. So somebody lost everything. Yes. And it's unfortunately the story of a 77-year-old retiree named Marjorie Bloom. So here's what happened. Ms. Bloom was on her computer, but then it froze up. A pop-up appeared directing her to call customer support at Microsoft along with a phone number. She called the number and was told that hackers had seized her computer and could possibly access her financial accounts. When Ms. Bloom said that her accounts were with the PNC Bank, she was transferred to a PNC fraud investigator who told her that there were already $29,000 worth of pending transactions and she needed to transfer her money to a different account. And fearing that her life savings would be stolen, Bloom wired a total of $661,000 over the next 28 days. Uh, and then she realized what I'm sure most of us have already figured out. The pop-up didn't come from Microsoft. She didn't speak with someone at Microsoft, and she was not transferred to someone at PNC Bank. There were criminals who committed one of the fastest-growing types of scams, now known as the tech support scam. The tech support scam. Yes. And so what happened to her money? Well, this is the quote from the CNBC article. The scammers had her wire funds from her PNC bank account to an account at the now-defunct Signature Bank in New York. From there, her money was transferred to an account on the cryptocurrency trading platform Coinbase, which scammers created using Bloom's picture and her personal data. Mm. The assets were then converted into cryptocurrency, and an investigation later showed 
move to an offshore account on the Binance crypto trading platform in the Cayman Islands. End of quote. In other words, Ms. Bloom's money is likely gone Vanished. for good. Oh, that is just so devastating. Of the three scary stories told so far, I think this is the scariest, at least for me, Robert, because it feels, as you mentioned, increasingly common. I, I hate the idea of having a, a broker who would be taking my money and paying off his mortgage with it, but I don't think that happens as frequently, or I don't think people are as broadly vulnerable to that kind of a thing as this kind of a thing. I have older parents in my life and older in-laws, and I think you do too, and I think we can all, many of us, relate to, um, the, the way I've tried to put it in our family is technology is a friend for us most of our lives, but as we get old, I, I think technology can become an enemy. It becomes too easy for people to be hoodwinked or fooled, click on the wrong button. It seems to be it's from Microsoft, and and it isn't. And wow, um, not only does that strike me as very common, but what's uncommonly scary is how quickly that money became something else that became something else and then disappeared altogether. Yes, and it's 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 unlikely she's going to get any of it back. She is suing PNC Bank because she feels like they should have done more to protect her. Of course, the bank is disagreeing. We'll see what happens. They may have reached that. They reached somewhat of a settlement, if I remember correctly. And and the thing about this is that I, these people have become so clever that I, I think anyone can fall for this. My wife fell for something like this many, many years ago. Actually, it ended. It, she ended up being on the Today Show because of it. It's so easy for an email to look like it came from your bank, your 401k, the IRS. And that's the lesson here. The lesson is don't click on it. Don't click on the text, the email. If something's going on with your account, don't call the number in the email. Instead, look up your bank's email, go to your bank's website, go to the branch, make sure that you are contacting the people directly because I do have fraud alerts on my credit cards. I do get notices, legitimate notices when there's some unusual spending. But because I don't know for sure that is coming from my credit card company or bank or whomever, I make sure I go to that website directly and then make the call. I love it. So a big way to combat this is simply don't respond to the communication you're getting, which probably arouses emotions or in some cases panic or fear in people. Do not react right away. Just give a separate phone call to your actual banker, your actual broker, and find out whether this is real. And chances are you're going to discover it's not because this kind of thing is prevalent. And it's not just the banks or bank alerts. Sometimes it's your computer. Something's wrong with your your computer. But in either case, technology is being used as a weapon back on usually the unwitting, increasingly aged people that fall most frequently for these kinds of scams. Although it's not about any given age. You just told a sad, but um, yeah. I hope a story with a happy ending, um, your lovely wife and uh, Today Show? The Today Show. <laughs> it's because she wrote about what happened to her you may remember it, David, in the early 2000s, she was a contributor to The Motley Fool. So she wrote about what she did and, and why she was kind of embarrassed by doing it. That guy picked up by Kiplinger's magazine, and then someone at NBC read it and got her on the Today Show for it. They came down and visited her house and did all the B-roll with the kids and I all totally that stuff. forgot that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's been almost 20 years now. Yeah. Um, and and to her, in her defense, that was, it was relatively new back yeah. then, this type of phishing or what they now call smishing when it's done through text. Oh. And the other thing I will add, too, it, it, it's often happening now through 
political ads, right? Donate to my candidate, even though that money's not going to the candidate. Charities, donate to the charity. It's not. And again, with, the, with older folks, it's open enrollment for Medicare. So Medicare is warning people to watch out for these types of scams. Mm. So it sounds like self-initiated communication efforts rather than reactive to others' communication efforts is a great way, as we mentioned, to combat this. A secondary phenomenon here, Robert, is just having younger people in your life or other people that you can talk to and say, have you seen this? Is this real or not? Before reacting in the moment. So something, again, to be said for a community that we can tap around us, presumably of loved ones, uh, that can help give us some perspective in the face of what seems to be this catastrophic thing that's all of a sudden sprung into your financial life. Yes, I think that's, that's a great way to put it. Uh, be proactive rather than reactive when you are alerted to these types of things. All right, let's move on to chapter number four. Now, I already know, because you gave me the titles ahead of time, I know where we're headed with this title. I have a short story I'm going to tell just before your story. But before I go to my short story, Robert, what is the title of chapter four? The Ex-IRSist. I know it's a stretch. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's very foolish. To to me, uh, the effort to pun in in a most silly way in the face of financial horror is highly capital F foolish. The ex-IRS, the ex-Earth-Sist. And, and I, as I saw this, I just wanted to share with you something that was true of our family growing up. So the original Exorcist movie, which, by the way, I've still never seen. What? And apparently is way better than the new one, which oh, yes. got pretty bad reviews. But yeah. that first movie was filmed in Washington, D.C., in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Uh, the Exorcist Steps, so-called, I regularly drive past as I drive home. We grew up in Georgetown, and Hollywood producers contacted my dad and mom in advance of filming the movie to see whether the house that my younger brother Tom and my younger sister Mary McIntyre, whether the three little gardener kids and their parents would move out of our house for a year so they could film The Exorcist what? in our house. You're kidding me. I'm not kidding. Uh, right there on Dumbarton Avenue in Georgetown. And my parents, I don't think they spent too long at this. <laughs> Um, I'd have to get back in touch with my dad. I don't think this is a big debate for them. I'm sure they would have gotten paid something. But they thought, our kids will be terrified of the house <laughs> that they move back into a year later if they ever watch the movie or hear wind of it or their, their obnoxious school friends play them a quick clip. This will scar our family. And so we never did do it. Somebody else in Georgetown said yes, probably somebody without young kids. Uh, but that is my ex Orsist story. Let's now go to the ex-IRSist story. Well, I have to start by telling my exorcist story, as you probably know, because I was a teacher at Holy Trinity School, which is attached to Holy Trinity Parish, which I believe was your parish growing up. It was, and this is about two blocks from the exorcist steps. Keep going. Yes, it's on the same block. So, I mean, when I was teaching, because I had so little money, I didn't have a car, so I would have to walk up and down the exorcist steps on the way to the metro in Roslyn. So I'm very familiar with where the exorcist That is phenomenal. And I've seen the movie probably about 10 times. (laughs) Anyways, but it's related because our next story does talk about a teacher. So begins with a mother who was a teacher, and thus she had been diligently contributing to her 403B, which is essentially kind of like the 401K for people who work for nonprofits and some government uh, agencies. So the years go on. 
and it's time to send her daughter to college. Unfortunately, she hasn't saved enough in college savings accounts, which is understandable. Teachers don't make a lot of money. Like I said, I know I was, I was one for five years. Um, and she also doesn't want to burden her daughter with school loans. So she looks for ways to pay the tuition bill and sees that pot of money in her 403B. Now, she knows that if she takes the money out before she's age 59 and a half, she'll pay taxes and a 10% early distribution penalty. She knows this. She knows this. But she reads somewhere that if you take out the money and use it for qualified higher education expenses, you still have to pay the taxes, but you don't have to pay the 10% penalty. She decides that's a price worth paying, and she takes the draw. But here's where the sad ending comes in. That exception for taking money out of a retirement account for qualified higher education expenses applies only to IRAs, not 403Bs, mm. not 401Ks. She got bad information. So she had to pay the taxes and the penalty, which would be bad for anyone, but particularly a tough burden for a teacher. Is this common? It is common. And I think that part of the issue is that the rules around this stuff either established by the IRS or communicated by the IRS because they're dictated by, by Congress, are complicated. I actually think the IRS does an okay job of trying to explain all this, but a lot of the documents are not thorough enough to make it clear where these things, you know, the, the, the certain little details that can trip you up. Sometimes I think about the language of finance, and I wonder, can it be simpler? Can it be a little bit more for the kindergartner rather than the advanced graduate student level finance student IRA, IRS, SEP, IRA, 401k, 403b, the list goes on, Roth. All of these often are acronymized. They're reduced to a few letters or a, a few random numbers, and it feels as if Maybe there's an opportunity to rename some of this in a way that's more intuitive and friendly for people because IRA doesn't necessarily connote very much to people beyond just knowing it's individual retirement account, but the rules that are attached to that and not this other thing that sounds like it create a lot of problems. Yeah, especially with accounts because every account has its own little rules and all these are named after, well, not all of them, but many of them are named after sections of the IRS code. 401k is from section 401, subsection K of the IRS code. How many people have gone in and read that section of I the have IRS not. code? I have not either. Well, maybe parts of it. But well, at least you know where it's from, though, 401k. Yes. But yeah. So again, maybe we're just imagining, along with John Lennon, imagining a, a different world or, or, or what a more peaceful and educated world could be if we were to actually rename more intuitively and helpfully many of these instruments that we're expected to know as adults. I'm so sorry to hear that that story. That is a scary story, no doubt, for some listening to us right now, especially because, as you mentioned, Robert, this is not unusual. People just don't quite know this one versus that one and the rules attached. Yes. And I'll, I'll get to the takeaway here is, and that is, whenever you make a significant financial decision, especially if it involves taxes, to know the rules. And that begins with going straight to the source, which is irs.gov. Wait, we, you and I just said we don't even go there. No, you go there. I go there. But I've never read through the, the tax code. The next time you have a question, though, you should go there first. And it's well done. It's, it's mostly well done. 
most so the, the official documents can get very legalistic, but then they often have like Q&As or, or quicker stuff. But anyways, you want to start there because that's the definitive answer, number one. And number two, you know it's updated because the problem with doing a search online mm. and you get, you know. A PDF from 2013. Exactly. And you don't know who wrote it. You don't know if it's accurate. And these laws change all the time. Whether it's about accounts or taxes or estate planning, all kinds of things, you want to make sure you're getting the most updated information. And then, if you don't understand it, it's good to build up a, a stable of sites you trust. So in this instance, I would recommend two. One is irahelp.com, which is the website of Ed Slot, who's an IRA expert and author, and he's been interviewed on, on various Motley Fool podcasts. And I bring that up because Ed is the, actually the source of this story. He told this story during a conference I attended once. Mm-hmm. And then another one when it comes to college saving is savingforcollege.com. Which savingforcollege.com and irahelp.com. Yes. And those are two places that I would recommend as good sources of information. But even in those, you've got to look at the date of the article to make sure you're getting the most updated information. All right. Well, from the ex-Earth-Cyst chapter four, we move now, Robert, to chapter five. There are six chapters in this book, although there's an appendix. There is. There's a, I'm not going to say it's a quiz at the end, but there, there's some important stats, some scary stats that you're going to share at the yes. end as a, as a bonus. But let's go to chapter five now. What's the title? Invasion of the Money Snatchers. I think I know what that one's keying into. And I don't know whether Rick Engdahl knows the soundtrack of that movie. Or maybe just a sound effect from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Which is is one of those movies. I don't really like horror movies, but that's one I've seen. That's the kind of movie that's remade every 15 or 20 years. I remember Donald Sutherland back in the day. I think I was really scared of that movie in my 1980s as a kid. I need to go back and check imdb.com to see what year. But anyway, invasion not of the body snatchers, but of the money snatchers. Explain. Okay, so the next story comes from really straight from the press release of the United States Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. And the monster in this scary story is a guy by the name of Timmy Hakim, who scammed at least 15 mostly elderly victims of $1.4 million by various means. So first of all, he pulled the classic lottery scam, you know, where you tell people they've won the lottery, but you have to give me some money first before you get the money. See, I didn't, I don't, that's a classic scam. That's a classic scam. I've never scam. won the lottery. I've never really even played the lottery. So I didn't know that's a thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You okay. get an email saying you have won. And, and, and either A, you have to give us money or click on this link, enter your bank account information so okay. that we can send you the money. Okay. You got to go through us to get your lottery money. Right. He also committed what is called the Business Email Compromise Scam, or BEC. And with this, criminals send an email message that appears to come from a known source making a legitimate request. And in this case, Hakeem persuaded someone at a corporation to send him company funds by impersonating the founder of the company. That's bold. (laughs) It's bold. Watch out for any emails that come to you, David, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and perhaps the most heartbreaking, he pulled some romance schemes uh, in which vulnerable individuals, in some cases widowers, were led to believe that they were in a romantic online relationship uh, when, in fact, they were just Hakeem and his accomplices building trust with the victims who would then request, would then send them money. Um, and now Hakeem was a U.S. citizen, um, but he had co-conspirators in South Africa. He sent them U.S. phones with U.S. phone numbers to, to deceive the, the victims, opened up bank accounts to have the money sent 
uh, to him. And then Hakeem at one point personally contacted a victim pretending to be a government official involved in detaining the victim's partner to induce the victim to send money. And now to pay for all these crimes, Hakeem will spend two years in prison, an additional six months in home detention, which in my opinion is not long enough. That is scary. And part of what scares me about that is I'm wondering how somebody like this particular gentleman figures out the scam. Is this somebody who's just inventive on himself? Is there a playbook out there on the dark webs about how to do this? Most of these scams, they're probably not dreamed up. They probably exist in PDF form somewhere about what you could do or what you could learn from Hakeem. Yeah, and some of these even predate places like the internet. Like the, like the romance scam has been around for decades. It used to start with like lonely hearts clubs that people used to belong to. Um, and, you know, these older folks, often older men, were sending letters to who they thought were young, attractive women, but if it was just actually another older man ripping them off. You know what it strikes me is that that, that was, I mean, scams go back to the beginning of time, one would expect. Uh, and yet it feels as if the development of the Internet, specifically in our lifetimes, the last 30 years, it seems as if a lot of the old school analog scams um, – have kind of disappeared or greatly lessened. There's a lot more scrutiny these days. You can see on your ring doorbell, if you have one, who rang your doorbell and how they comported themselves. And people have surveillance cameras and other things around their properties these days. That's not atypical, and that happens a lot in cities these days. So I feel like there's a lot more transparency, but that's why it feels as if it's migrated so much of it into the cyber realms. And a number of the chapters that you featured this week, Robert, are about the use of technology very specifically, maybe doing what the old school prankster did back in the day, the hucksters, and now a lot of it is just a click of a button or a tap on your phone. Yeah, and it's so easy, right? I mean, you could just send out thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of emails, and you, you can get a very small response rate to make it pay off. Yeah. All right, so let's go with the takeaway. And we've actually touched on this one, but I think this one really emphasizes the fact that older folks are more likely to be victims of these types of crimes. As you alluded to earlier, often they have money. So anyone whose money is more of a target, less tax savvy as well. And the truth is that we're all going to experience some level of cognitive decline as we get older, and it could lead to suboptimal decisions. Um, David Lapson, who's a professor at Harvard, estimates that as, many, as, as much as 50% of people in their 80s experience some sort of cognitive decline that either will lead to less than awesome financial decisions, but in some cases, d disastrous decisions. So if you have older relatives, you have to help them develop a system for keeping an eye on mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, aunt and uncle. But also we have to recognize it's going to happen to us too. There you go. And we, you have to have a plan for how are you going to gracefully give up control over your finances or your healthcare decisions or your ability to drive so that you can protect yourself, your spouse, and your family from being a victim to these types of scams. Well said. And I just want to reiterate again, technology, it strikes me, is mostly a helper and enabler for most of our lives. But it's often not just a hindrance, but a huge problem in our older age. And so while these are generalizations and there are people who are incredibly tech-savvy in their 90s and people who are clueless, and uh, good on you, by the way, if you're clueless and don't know how to use a smartphone and you're 15, you are an unusual and maybe amazing person. But it's, we, I don't want to overemphasize 
the stages of our lives and the numbers. But as you just pointed to, cognitive decline is pretty numerical and it is pretty expectable. And so shame on us if as younger generation people we're not making sure that we have a conversation or two or make some plans with the older person in our life. And it's, that's even better enabled if that person initiates it him or herself. Kids, grandkids, I'm in my 60s now. I feel great. But the reality is that maybe 20 years from now, I won't. And I'm going to need your help. So let's talk about that now, not then. Yep. Great advice. All right. Chapter six. And by the way, is this the scariest of all? Have you saved... Robert, have you saved the scariest for last? No, I don't think I, I don't think I have. I saved this one for last because it's a bit of a, as you mentioned, did you say reprise was the word you used? I, I mean, did. I think it's I sort did of. Right. How about we say it's like, it's sort of like a sequel to last year's. Oh version. my gosh, this is the they didn't do their Willer Estate story. Yes, excellent. Yeah. Tell it, Chapter exactly. Six. What's the title? The Queen of Souls speaks from the grave and the couch. Do tell. All right, so our final story is about Aretha Franklin. So the acclaimed singer who passed away in 2018, it was originally thought that, as she's known, the Queen of Soul, died without a will. But then a will she wrote by hand in 2010 was found under lock and key in her house. And it stipulated that two of her four sons would need to get a certificate or a degree in business before becoming entitled to her estate. Hmm. But then... A niece was cleaning Ms. Franklin's house in 2019, found another handwritten will what? from 2014 under the cushions of the couch. And according to The Guardian, they described this as it was, quote, written in a spiral-bound notebook. The document was hard to decipher with words scratched out and phrases written in the margins. Now, this one didn't have the requirement for the degree for the two sons. And it also said that her home would go to just one of her sons and her grandchildren. So basically, the other three sons would not get the house. Wow. Yes. Now, as is often the case, when an estate plan isn't updated and rock solid, the fighting among the relatives began. Yeah, and I've got some questions about that last one. The idea that it was just in the couch, found by cleaning, reactively afterward? I have questions. And and you can find, I think, pictures of it. I think I've seen it. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you would look at it and you're like, boy, this is, this is, but so this is where, this is where the courts come in, right? You have to bring in experts to authenticate things. And uh, yeah. So anyways, big fight. Remember, she died in 2018. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until this past July five years after Franklin passed away, mm. that the will that was found in the couch was considered to be the valid will. The one I didn't think was valid. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. Shows what I know. And in the meantime, right, you have all this acrimony among the brothers. Yeah, it's sad. The time it took to settle the estate. The, I, mean, I can't imagine the expense. how— expense. Uh, yeah, the amount they had to spend on lawyers. The lesson, of course, is to get a professionally prepared estate plan— Update it regularly and then let important people know where the most recent version can be found. And if you have old versions, it's probably best to just destroy them so they're not found and then there's a big fight over them. That's a great story, and I appreciate how current it is. Just settled this summer five years later. You couldn't have told this story on last year's show because it wasn't decided. Robert, as we near the end here, 
Why do we scare people? Why do you come on this podcast? Well, you come on multiple times a year, but this time of year, why why do you like to scare people like this? Well, uh, as we all know, people are motivated by both greed and mm. fear. And I have to say, David, one thing that's different about me and you, you are a positive, optimistic person. I tend to be kind of an awfulizer, and it's it sounds bad, but I am more motivated by avoiding things than getting things. There's a yin and yang here, and you probably in every good partnership or relationship, it's good to have some of, of both. That's why I think we enjoy each other so much, yes. and I hope that we've created some scary value this week <laughs> together, largely because of the effort that you put in, Robert, to scan the airwaves and the internets and find true stories that are truly scary. A motley array this year. We, we weren't just theming it one direction, although maybe scams. Scams was, I think, maybe the leitmotif of this year's version. But as we move toward the end, I like to summarize. An episode like this, I think, deserves to have itself briefly summarized. So I'm going to go through the six titles again, and you're going to give a sentence or so of the takeaway or what was going on with that. Thank you for this work that you put in on behalf of all of us, Robert. It was a delight to be with you this week. We're not quite done yet. Chapter one was switcheroo with the vampire. So keep an eye on your financial accounts because even people you trust might be trying to take your money. Chapter two, the trade is coming from within the house. If you learn some market moving information about your company, resist the temptation to do some insider trading. Chapter three, dial M for my money is all gone. Someone reaches out to you through email or text or pop up saying, contact me with this phone number or respond to this email or click on this link. Don't do it. Go find another way to contact the person because it may not be the person you think it is in the first place. Well said. Chapter four, the pun of the week. I don't just mean on this show. I mean worldwide. This is the pun of the week. I believe we have it right here on this podcast. The ex-Earth, IRS, the ex-Earthist. Yeah, so this one is not a scam. It's someone who made an honest mistake because the rules laid out by the IRS can be so complicated. The lesson, of course, is to make sure you know everything you need to know before you make a big financial decision. Chapter five, invasion of the money snatchers. This is just a guy who just came up with all kinds of scams to rip people off. And that really, the, the lesson here is anyone who contacts you over the internet, over the phone, anything like that through email, don't trust. And by the way, it was a 1978 film, that Donald Sutherland vehicle uh, invasion of the body snatchers. It's been made many times. I'm sure it'll stream on some streaming network again in the next five years, a new version. All right, finally, chapter six, the Queen of Soul speaks from the grave and the couch. Get an updated estate plan regularly from a qualified attorney. Put it somewhere safe. Let the important people know where to find it so there are no fights about what you want to happen to your stuff, to your kids, to your family heirlooms when you pass away. Six motley lessons, six scary lessons, and I think made that much more effective, Robert, because you took the time to tell stories. We are storytelling and story listening creatures. Some of the best ways that we can learn and hold on to lessons is through stories. Thank you for sharing those. Now, there is an appendix we mentioned. There's an afterword because you have a few statistics that are also intended to scare. Now, I want to say 51 out of the 52-ish weeks of the year on this podcast, we generally don't try to be scary. We're trying to be friendly, helpful, inspirational, guide people, 
toward the good place by encouraging them, but at least one week a year. This particular week, this particular month, by the way, Friday the 13th was October this year. I know. This particular month, we are here to scare. Robert Brokamp, you have, as an afterward, a few scary things to share in closing. Yes. So when, as we were talking about this episode, I first conceived it as really scary stats that keep me up at night. Uh, and I did want to mention just a few of them. So there are no stories here. And you, you are right. We are storytelling people. The, one of my favorite authors is Bill Bernstein. He says, we are the apes that imitate and tell stories. Mm. Um, but so I got three stats that keep me up at night as someone who mostly focuses on retirement planning. And the first one is $40,000. And that stat is basically the median amount that Gen X has saved for retirement, according to the National Institute on Retirement Security. I don't know if you've seen, David, there's actually been a slew of studies about how much Gen X has saved. And I think it's like there's this focus on Gen X because we're the folks who are still still working but getting close to retirement, Gen X being folks being born in 1965 to 1980. So we're basically in our early 40s to late 50s. And when you think of people at that stage with the median have only saved $40,000, now is the time to change that and ramp up your savings while you still can. So that is the median amount saved. Yes. Are you aware, do the folks at the Institute have data going back years? Is this trending? Is this an all-time low? Did they just start studying this? I'm curious for any historic norming that we can do. That's a good question. I don't know that. But what they did point out that only 14% have a defined benefit plan, which obviously, you know, people like the baby boomers much more likely to have a, a traditional pension because the 401k system, as we know it, really didn't take off until the early to mid 80s where that transition happened. Okay. So to a certain degree, David, you and I are both Gen Xers. We're going to be really the, the, the first 401k generation. All right. That was pretty scary. And yet you're not done scaring us. You've got two more scary statistics that are keeping Robert Brokamp up at night. A guy who I would think sleeps pretty soundly, maybe even like a baby. Are you empty nested at this point in life? We are empty nested, just as in the last couple of months. Oh, my gosh. I think we may have talked about that over the summer when you came on telling a stock story. Stock Stories Volume 8, by the way, a delightful story from Robert, a wholesome, encouraging, non-scary story about That's his true. <laughs> Home Depot di- investment and the dividends that have come to you. A 34-bagger, if I remember. A 34, 33-bagger. It's definitely like worth that. going back and listening to Stock Stories Volume 8 for positive Brocamp. This is scary, Brocamp. Give yes. us two more scary statistics. All right. This one is 40%, and that is roughly the percentage of people who cash out their 401k when they change jobs. So when you do that, you're going to pay taxes and penalties, but also miss out on the growth that that 401k could have had if you left it alone to retire. That's That's a huge opportunity cost. Yes. Play that compounding going forward measured by a few more decades. Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, truly. Uh, And of course, the thing to do when you leave a job is either A, roll it over to your next 401k, or my preferred thing to do, roll it over to an IRA, do it trustee to trustee so you don't get a check. If you do get a check in the mail, get it to the new account within 60 days and then let that money keep growing. So looking at the glass half full, the good news is 60% of us are not doing that. But let's go briefly to the half empty view, the 40% who aren't. Robert, do you surmise that it's out of ignorance? They just didn't know or understand? Or do you surmise it's more out of need? They actually really needed that money at that point. Whether or not you think they should have needed it, maybe they thought they needed it so they cashed out. Why do people do this? 
Well, it's, it depends, I think. I mean, I think some people do think they need it. I think people do not appreciate the, the, the ability for money to compound over the decades. Surely. For many people, it's difficult to think in terms of if I'm 20 or 30, even in my 40s, like why should I care about retirement? It's so far away. But also, a, a little bit of this is that if your balance is less than $1,000, the 401k can just send you a check. And so you get this check in the mail, and you're like, oh, I got extra money. Mm -hmm. And you don't know that you need to get that into a new account within 60 days, or you'll pay the taxes and penalties. That $789 was your 401k you just cashed. Yep, exactly. All right. I think you said that there's, I think there's one more scary statistic yet to come. When is this podcast going to (laughs) end? One more. This is the last one, I swear. Until next year. Anyways, (laughs) so the last scary statistic is... 60%. And this comes from longtermcare.gov. And I'm just going to read the quote from the government website. At some point in our lives, about 60% of us will need assistance with things like getting dressed, driving to appointments, or making meals. So in other words, the majority of us, as we get older, are going to need some form of help. And most people, it is not a full-fledged nursing home. It is, I need help shopping. I need help cleaning. I need help doing things like that. Some of us will need nursing home care. But either way, it's going to either be a burden to your family. In some families, that's fine. That's part of your family culture Uh to take care of each other. Other people, it'll be expensive. It can range from $50,000 a year to over $100,000 a year, depending on the need. So part of your retirement plan has to factor this in. Whether you get insurance, whether you self-insure just because you did a good job of saving, or, again, because it's part of your family, you, of course, take care of each other. Whatever it is, it'll be different for everyone, Mm -hmm. but you have to have a plan for it. But you have to have a plan for it. And I I like that because I think you took us from a scary statistic to a plan. You, You got us thinking about this ahead of time. And, indeed, that's what you've been doing all hour long, Robert, this week. You've been provoking us to action. And in some cases, the action is just awareness. It's just, oh my gosh, I should think about that. I should do that or not do that. In other cases, it's, I have been meaning to do that for a long time. I'm going to start doing, writing my will, I'm going to start doing that this month. So thank you for being ever the provocateur. I'm hoping that we're making a difference. I did find a survey that over the last year, more people did get an estate plan. And I'm going to say it's because no. of our episode. What? Yeah, it's true. It's true. I, I mean, at least that's what I'm going to say to myself. That is spectacular, as was this appearance as well and your other appearances on this podcast. We don't just have you here this week of the year, but as one of my favorite fools, somebody who's been occasionally featured in our local paper, The Washington Post, for his Halloween costumes <laughs> that he's gallivanted around Fool HQ with in the past. Um, I know that I am here with somebody who, even though he describes himself as sort of looking at protecting downside, he creates joy and education awareness for so many people. Robert, thank you for doing it on Rule Breaker Investing this oh, week. Always a pleasure. And trick or treat. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.